I never particularly liked the Northwest much. I lived in the coast, um, lots of rain, and I was much excited about getting out of there and starting over, which is exactly what we did. We made one album when we lived there in a seven inch. And then um, we got out of there, me and Dale, and basically started over completely in um, San Francisco. Started the whole band over. And it went pretty quickly for us there. Within like a few months, we had um, far more than we ever had in the Northwest, as far as like, a, you know, we had somebody wanted to put out our records, we were starting to get shows and things like that around there. Uh, weirdly, a lot of the people that we, well, I guess it's not weird, relatively normal. A lot of the people that we knew there when we first moved there are all dead. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's just how it goes. Same with the Northwest. I think back about all the people that I knew, a lot of them are dead. The vast majority of them that I knew from the early days, a lot of them are dead. I guess that's typical, fairly. So I feel pretty fortunate in that that didn't happen to me. So that's good. But I uh, never had a fondness for the area. I was never particularly fond of the sub pop people or they weren't going much before we left. But they, uh, I didn't feel much of a kinship with any of that stuff. I felt a kinship with a lot of the people. Like uh, guys like Mark Arm, Steve Turner, I was friends with those guys and remained friends with them to this day. Um, Mark was one of the first guys we ever met when we first started going to shows in Seattle early on. I learned a lot from him. It was great. A lot of, a lot of different bands and stuff like that. And uh, that was great. But I didn't ever really want to live in Seattle. I never really wanted to have anything to do with that and felt like we were on our own. And that was how it was going to remain and went and started over somewhere else. I would recommend that to people, especially in the early days, is uh, get out of your environment and uh, try something new. It forces you to do uh, to, to be a little more cagey, I guess. And how much of that sort of like displeasure with the area do you think was actually due to, you know, Seattle or the location itself and how much of it was just that kind of, you know, you're younger, that impulse to get, far away from where you came from? Um, I don't know. Uh, I had nothing to go home to. It wasn't like I had a bunch of opportunities waiting for me, either family-wise or business-wise or anything like that. I never went to college. I never saw the point. I, I, I uh, always thought it was kind of silly. Never understood. Unless you wanted to be an electrical engineer or a doctor or something, I didn't really see why would you go to college. Even then, I was like, the world doesn't need more lawyers. I always thought people who went to college were dupes. This is more high school, a lot more expensive. I just never, never understood it. It's like the guy. The weird thing is the guys that I know now that aren't musicians that have done the best financially and didn't inherit money, or you know, or, or were not musicians. All of none of them went to college. Not one. <laughs> it's amazing, and the, and the amount of people that I know that are actually making money or doing the job that they went to college for is minimal. So I don't know. It's, it's crazy. I'm definitely with you on, on that second point. The first one is interesting. You know, I, th- I think probably because of where I live and, and what I do, I I'm, tend to be surrounded by people that at least went to, you know, undergrad. What, what's your sense of why the people who didn't go to college are that much more successful? I don't know. That's just how it is. Um, maybe they delay their adolescence or, they, or they, they continue their adolescence. They delay their adulthood and, and don't learn how to work. I mean, it's like, 
if you never had a job or anything like that until after you get out of college, it seems like you don't have a whole lot of idea how the world really works because you're going to school with a bunch of people and getting taught by a bunch of people who by and large don't run businesses and never, never have any concept of how any of that kind of stuff works. None. You're probably going to learn more about the job world by talking to a guy working in a fucking factory or a warehouse. Higher education is a bit of a, it's a closed loop, right? You know, it's, it's people who went to school to become professors who are just like exists in that university system basically forever. Oh, they, they, they go, well, you go there to learn how to think. Well, you'd like to think that was the case, but the world is filled with stupid, educated people. <laughs> the both of you move out to San Francisco and what are you, what are you doing for a living at that point? Oh, shitty jobs, restaurant work, stuff like that. I mean, I always figured that uh, uh, I didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, I knew that I didn't want to go to school and I didn't want any of the jobs that those, those would, would, would present to me. I didn't really want to do them. We worked really hard on our music, not really with the idea that we were going to make a living doing it, but when it got to the point about 1988 that we could get our first royalty check from Boner and we could maybe pay our bills for a little while, Dale and I said, well, what we need to do is um, give this a shot. And um, let's try this for now, figuring that we could always get a crappy job somewhere and do it until we can't pay our bills anymore. And we'll do continue doing it with the idea of what got us this money that we have right now in the first place with that attitude going, toward, going forward. And um, we haven't had jobs since. So in the 88, when I quit working in 1988, that was far before the grunge explosion or any of that stuff, or Nirvana took off or any of those kinds of things. Because that's always funny, too, because people go, well, once Nirvana took off, then you guys did a lot better. I like, well, actually, I was not working before Nirvana took off. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Um, I've always been really careful with my money and, and um, kind of thought ahead uh, along those lines. There's nothing I was ever taught. But uh, my strange philosophies about finance and all those kinds of things as it turns out, when I've talked to other people who explain that kind of stuff to them, they'll go, uh, that's a lot of the same things that Debtors Anonymous tells people, <laughs> weirdly enough. So, such as? Uh, save money. Um, get out of debt. Just on and on. All these things that, you know, like, don't try to get off the treadmill of, of owing someone a ton of money. Don't, don't, uh, don't uh, uh, charge more on your credit card than you can pay off at the end of the month. None of these things seem too far afield, right? This seems like pretty basic financial advice. No one ever does it. <laughs> no one ever does it. How many people I know have, you know, uh, $10,000 or more credit card bill de- debt and they work. <laughs> it's like, what the hell are you doing? I do that kind of stuff too. But it's like if we're on tour, it's always with the idea though, that we're, that's going to be paid off at, at the end of the month. I don't carry debt ever under any circumstances. If I want something like if I want to buy like this iPad that I'm watching this on right now, I wait until I have the money and then I buy it on a credit card and then pay it off. <laughs> I don't buy it and then pay it off. You know, just stupid shit like that. I've always felt that way. I've never, my family never had any money. I, I grew up really lower middle class. I mean, just barely, maybe not even, but certainly when I was young, when I was a, you know, a, a toddler to my, into my teens, we were, well below the poverty line. But I don't think that that, that, that kind of stuff gives you more incentive or, or teaches you more or anything like that. And I don't believe that because my parents were really young when they had me. 
they didn't have those kinds of lessons to give me. So I learned all that on my own. Sure. But it does, it, maybe it doesn't still in you the ability to kind of go without for some time. Maybe. I'm not sure. I always thought something was going to happen, especially when we jumped off the deep into the deep end with their music. I had nobody to go home to. I had nobody to send me money. And so I got to make this work. How am I going to make this work? Well, then you start thinking about what are you going to do to survive as a musician without alienating the fan base that you have and still making it work? It's not just about money. That's what people don't get a lot. Of, well, it's just about how much money you're making. Well, no, it's not just this money. It's continuing the whole thing. How do you make it? Uh, it's like going on tour. I want to have a, establish a really great relationship with lots of clubs all over the world. Because I, I don't want to just play there once. I want to play there a bunch of times. I want to have a long history with them that, where, where you can go back time and time again and have a really good experience and uh, not burn that bridge by making as much money as you can in one show. That's crazy. That's what people think. That, you know, that, that that's the attitude when you're thinking of it in a capitalistic way, but it's like, no, it's better for me to think about it in terms of the long term and how that will work and, and not alienating everyone around me and not alienating everybody that I work with and making sure that all the people around me are, are taken care of and on and on and on. It's not just every man for himself, take as much as you can. That would, that philosophy won't work and it's really bad business. It doesn't work. People rarely anticipate having the longevity that you and the band have had. You know, obviously, if you do this thing for 30 to 40 years, you're going to be dealing with the same people over and over again. You want to, or you're going to be out of business. And and it's also being satisfied with what you have and what you're, as opposed to what you believe you should have. And it's like, if we all got what we deserved, you'd You'd be in prison after a severe beating, probably, if you got what you deserve. If, if karma was actually running the universe, right? If you know, if you got what you deserved, considering all the shit you've gotten away with in your life, you never had to pay any consequences for. You know, if you had to pay for all that stuff, it's just that's the best, one of the worst things you can wish on someone. Is I just wish that, that they will get what they deserve. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's a horrible thing. You don't have to do it. They're already. Doing it. You know, so it's just thinking it's not going to work. A lot of it, imagining you're going to be out of business in six months all the time and uh, working along those lines and just keeping that going. And so far, so good. Basically planning for worst case scenario. Yeah, we're living through one right now. You know, I mean, who could could have foreseen this happening? But I always thought the weird thing, and I'm no scientist, and um, but I always thought when people are talking about stuff like global warming, I always thought, for years, I thought, I don't think global warming is going to kill me. I think you're going to kill me by giving me a disease or, or something like that. I'll, get, I'll catch something from you that's going to kill me, not the world. And I, how wrong, how I, wasn't, I wasn't really far wrong in that. <laughs> and uh, then I heard some guy talking about how um, in the future, they'll look back on us and how, about how barbaric we were for doing things like living in a house or driving in a car that doesn't have a virus scrubber you know, attached to it. and just on and on all things that they'll figure They'll figure out this will cause a lot. This kind of thing will cause people to come up with new, very new ideas for all kinds of things we haven't thought of yet. And so the future looks bright. As far as I'm concerned, they'll figure something out. It, it always looks terrible. If everything stays exactly how you think it will, it never does. You can't predict the future, but you know, do you anticipate 
or even are you seeing now, have you seen in the last year and a half, some hopeful or at least interesting changes to the way people make money playing music that, you know, that you think might also evolve into the future? Mm, what would you, what, give me some examples. Well, you know, like, you know, I, I know a lot of people are doing uh, remote shows and, I, and I've heard from a lot of people that uh, venues expect that that's going to continue to be a thing that, you know, maybe maybe people won't always be as excited necessarily to go see a show in person. You know, maybe this idea of watching stuff from home will continue in the future. Well, we did uh, three remote broadcasts during this and we charged $5 per and not a hell of a lot of people were interested in that. And so I just don't think people are going to tune in for the video experience on, on any kind of level. Uh, maybe if you're a K-pop band or something like that, it might work. Selling to a bunch of kids who are 14 who probably couldn't go to the show anyway. Maybe. But adults are just not going to do it. They're just not, even if it's five bucks. We charge five bucks. And every single one of them was less people than the one before it. So it's like, okay, well. And it makes it to where... It is so much trouble to do one of those, especially if you want to do it with any kind of quality at all, that it's not worth doing. It's just not, it's not worth it. I can't find people to work for nothing to get me the really high quality stuff that we want to do on, on, under those circumstances. And if you're talking about a remote show of me playing acoustic guitar in my bedroom, it, uh, videoed on a fucking iPhone, that's not going to cut it. I'm not doing that. It's just, there's just, um, no one's interested in that. Nobody is. It might be a slight, somebody might be slightly interested in that as a YouTube video, but as a way to make money, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. Unless you want zero quality and quality control and have no, nothing, it just, it just doesn't make sense. Not at all. I haven't seen it. I mean, we, we gave it our best shot and I'm not going to bother with any of that anymore. People just don't care, even for five bucks. So, so people go, well, you're charging a lot of money. Now, we didn't charge dick. That's less than going to a movie, and, and no one's interested. I mean, no one, to me, no one is interested on a level that would make it to where, well, that's a viable option for us to maybe not tour. No, no, no not even close. Yes, we made money on it, but not anywhere near as much for the trouble that we had to go through. The album that's coming out, that's what, your second or even like third release of the pandemic? That'll be, well, we've had a lot of releases during the pandemic, a lot of um, limited edition stuff. And we have a new Melvin's album that came out on Ipecac in um, February. Um, uh, that was uh, Melvin's 1983, which is uh, the original drummer and Dale playing bass, working with God. And then this new thing is a four acoustic, four album acoustic 36 song release that we recorded during the pandemic that's coming out that we're all very proud of. We worked really hard on it and it was really fun to reimagine all the songs on acoustic. And uh, we worked really hard on the vocals. And I think the vocals are really going to sell this thing to a lot of people because uh, that's not something that people have really made much, paid much attention to up to this time. And I think that um, this will show people that actually we can sing and that um, they just hadn't noticed. We'll see. That's a two and a half hour time set. Is it that you hadn't focused as much on the vocals before, or is it just that there was it, that it's harder for the listener to focus on the vocals when they're not as upfront? No, we've always massively focused on the vocals. It's just no one, no, no one paid attention to it. It's always been there. Maybe they'll notice that now. I mean, especially with big business guys, we did a hell of a lot of that kind of thing. People kind of noticed it, but um, we sing a lot better than we're giving credit for. How about that? Especially on the last record, um, the uh, 
we did um on the working with god record we did a cover of the beach boys uh get around to fuck around those getting those harmonies right was that was tough that was the hardest song on the record i'm one of those like obsessive fans who's listened to all of the isolated vocal tracks of the beach boys like the just you know the amount of work that goes into a single song i can't even imagine how difficult it is to put down but i mean were you how closely were you attempting to approximate the original song well we knew we kind of knew what to do just had our instincts instinctually and uh i knew kind of had cut it down to like three or four different parts and see how that goes try that um the music wasn't incredibly difficult the Beach Boys music itself isn't incredibly difficult. It's the vocals that sells that stuff for sure. Oh, sir, certainly that era was a lot simpler. Right. The, the, um, beach, the, the actual beach era, <laughs> you know. Although the surf, surf never, era. Yeah, yeah. A surf era. But, you know, even on Smile and stuff like that, there was still surf stuff. Um, to some degree, anyway. Sure, but they weren't singing around about, like, hanging out in their woodies. No. Um, but the music is fairly simplistic. It's kind of like a Chuck Berry crossed a tiny bit with Adventures, maybe. The harmonies are always the hard part to nail. That was the tough. I mean, so, that's a real yeah. genius. Yeah, so I laid down the vocal, the main vocal first, and then we d- dicked around with how we were going to do it. And that's a song we spent way more time on than any other song on the record, by far. <laughs> I mean, same with this. This thing, we get the music done pretty quickly, acoustic and um, the bass and the acoustic and the drums. And then we spent way more time figuring out how we were going to sing it all. You know, and that just took a lot longer. It just does. I don't know why. Just normally, normally for us, that's kind of how it goes. Vocals are important. They're very important, especially with a band like us where we're playing, you know, like a cross between, uh, it's basically heavy metal Captain Beefheart with some throbbing gristle thrown in there. And you want to kind of add something else to it. That's uh, uh, the, the secret weapon, I think, in our, in our stuff is that we're capable of doing that. Those guys I play with are super great players. And um, they're good singers, and we can—they can pull off pretty much anything I throw at them. So that's really nice. It's really great. I feel very fortunate being able to play with those guys. Was this kind of your big, your big uh, quarantine project? Putting this together? Yeah, I didn't really come up with it until during quarantine. Uh, well into quarantine. I mean, like into last summer, I guess. I guess maybe, maybe a better way of phrasing it is—is—is is, is this something that could have only really happened? that you only really would have come up mm-hmm. with during the quarantine. I had put out a, um, a solo record gift of sacrifice that I was going to tour on and everything. And the pandemic destroyed that. And so I, I was kind of, I kind of already had this acoustic thing on my mind. And then the plan, the original plan was that we, I was going to do that record with Trevor Dunn and um, that would come out in the spring. Me and him would tour it while Red Cross was touring with uh, Stephen and Dale. And then, the Trace Cabrana or the um, working with God record would come out in November. And then that next spring we would hit the road and have an album, a new Melvin's album out that we could tour, but all that got shakened and the, um, all my touring got shaken. And then that record got pushed back to August. And so then the, the working with God record got pushed back to February. It was weird. Like during the pandemic or the distributors said, that you can go ahead and put that record out, but any returns or anything that comes back, you're paying for all of it. So it's like, okay, well, that, there's a lot of understanding there. You know? And so that pushes the whole thing back. They were just like, we're not taking responsibility. For it. So you do what you want to, but anything happens on this, because we don't think the record, any records are going to sell during this. You're the one that's going to get fucked. 
So they have no choice but to wait till uh, 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 August to put it out. And then since I can't tour it, it just kind of falls by the wayside. So that was kind of unfortunate. So I kind of had that in mind, acoustic stuff. And so then um, we'd done a little, we'd done a little bit of that playing acoustic live with uh, the same kind of setup and Dale playing with brushes and um, acoustic guitars. And uh, um, so then we just started doing it and I I I go, let's just start laying down some acoustic songs and see what happens. We have songs and a few covers that we wanted to do. And uh, we, once we got into it, I was like, "Mm, single album. And it just seems kind of like a nothing double album. That's a little better. Let's do four album, double, double. And so that seems more ridiculous and like a much bigger thing than a double, even a double album is not, eh, you know, it's cool, but four albums is about what we want. They're roughly, if you look at like what, what, if you go by vinyl, anything much more over 18 minutes on a side really starts cutting into the quality of what it sounds like terribly. And so they're all around 18. There's one that might be close to 20. That's what we, that's how we timed it out. You know, retrospective across of it. And so we would go into the studio and I would have an idea for a couple of songs that we wanted to do that day or whatever it is. So we have our own studio with uh, this guy, Toshi Kasai. And um, we would go down there and, and work out a version of the song on acoustic and then maybe uh, redo the, the guitars, uh, re-record them once we got the drums done. But Dale played all that drums with, with brushes, which is massively impressive. There's no, 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 no drumsticks in the whole record. And then we did a lot of things in the drum set, like, muffling it a little more to give it a little weirder sound, all kinds of things, all kinds of tricks to make it sound uh, less like a um, full drum set and still let him be able to hit it like he normally would, but doing it without sticks. So and we really gave him a couple of challenges too, like a evil new war God has to do all the drum solos with, with uh, brushes. That's tough. It's like, that'll just blow by people and they won't notice, but it's like, you know, I've, I've saw some things where people were like, well, the regular drums don't really fit in with this, with the acoustic guitars. <laughs> They're not really regular drums, regular to you, but that's not what he's doing. There's no, there's no drumsticks in the whole record. That was cool. And then when I got into it, we're like, this is kind of good. I kind of like this. This is really fun. And then we also thought, you know, we honestly have no idea what touring is going to be. We have no idea. And so if we have an acoustic record out, the only way we can tour is something like that. Then we have we have a product for it, and we have a re- thing that we can go out and tour with. If it goes back to normal really quickly, well, we still have this really cool four album thing. And so that was kind of our thinking. It sounds like you weren't a hundred percent sure until you maybe got a couple of songs under your belt. Yeah, well, I, I knew I knew we could do it, but uh, um, I didn't come up with a four album thing until we were well into it. At first, it was just like. Maybe- we could do maybe we could do and then we just just kept going and i was like now we gotta do something huge it's gonna be two and a half hours 36 songs <laughs> anything worth doing is worth overdoing did you get the sense that you were really kind of rebuilding the songs from the ground up yeah fully reinterpreting them for acoustic and for um, vocals along those lines and we didn't care well we normally don't care the albums are just suggestions what does that mean that means that we're not married to those to the way they sound on the record I've always thought that our fans or music fans in general should be smart enough to know when they're listening to a record or listening to a recording versus going to a live show. I don't expect a band to like sound exactly like they do on their records. I mean, one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band is the who, and one of their best records is live at Leeds, which is totally different versions. And so I knew from an early age that that was okay. 
that's not verboten. That's fine. And they did. Arguably, it's one of their best records. Um, and it's all live versions, which are completely different than they are on the records. I love that. And then the other thing I saw with Pete Townsend was a long time ago. Fuck, 40 years ago. There was this record that came out called The Secret Policeman's Ball. Mm-hmm. And Townsend doing Who songs. And it was Drowned, Pinball Wizard, and Won't Get Fooled Again. And it was so cool. I just thought, oh, my God. It was acoustic, right? Yeah. And him singing acoustic. I was like, this is good because these songs are good. It doesn't matter how he does it. It's good. And so that's kind of what we were about. These songs are good. They have a, a powerful, heavy message to them, no matter if I'm playing acoustic guitar or not. And I, I did that a few years ago, five, five or six years ago. I did a whole tour where I, play, I put on an acoustic record, um, This Machine Kills uh, Artists, and uh, um, did a whole tour where I played Melbourne songs and, and my own songs. Uh, and, uh, and I proved that it could work. No problem at all. People were surprised. I'm like, oh, why are you surprised? It's so funny. Like, what do you think it was going to sound like? Mm, I don't know. So many of those people, though, like metal people or punk rock people, if they pick up an acoustic guitar, they immediately sound like fucking James Taylor or Woody Guthrie. Which is, it's like, that's not me. You know, so um, I never wanted to do that. Were the majority of your songs written on acoustic guitar? A lot of them have been. I mean, that probably helps ultimately, right? Um, yeah, but I don't know. I don't remember which ones were. A lot of them are written on acoustic electric guitar. Where I'm just playing the electric guitar acoustically, and then I come up with a riff and record it. But I have so much, so much material um, from doing stuff like that over the years—literally hundreds and hundreds of riffs—that we haven't even gotten to yet. So I don't know that we will. That's another funny thing. People think, that, "Oh, their new album—it's all new songs." It's like, well, they're new to you. <laughs> no, they're not not new to us. Is your catalog of unrecorded or unfinished songs—is it largely riff based? Some of them, some of them are will be turned into songs, but a lot of most of them. The vast majority of them are crap. They're just never going to never going to see the light of day because they're not very good. At some point, I'll be playing something and, and I'll go, "That's cool," and I'll record it so I don't forget it. Go back to it. Eh, I don't know. I would say ninety percent, ninety to ninety-five, never gets touched. It's just not enough. Were there ones that you attempted from the catalog that just like that just couldn't that you that, that you just couldn't turn into acoustic versions? No, everything worked. Everything we tried worked. Um, some of them I might have jammed on myself at home. Or I'd just think about it and go, yeah, we could do that. And then another thing with us is if we come up on a part that we can't do that's on the record, then we'll just change it. Just change it. No big deal. We don't feel married to that stuff. So what, was there a fair amount of rewriting in that sense? Well, if you listen, yeah, a lot. If you listen to, uh, um, not because we couldn't do it, because we just, oh, that's cool. I like it. Or like, uh, if you listen to a song like, I flies is our first record. Um, halfway, ha- as soon as the song's done, then it goes into a song by free. So we married those together and uh, that was fun. So we did stuff like that, figuring out, you know, v- a wide variety of ways to play the songs. A lot of them are different than they are in the records. That's for sure. I'm, I'm fine with that. How much of your songs continue to evolve as they lived on beyond the, the recording as you played them live? Do you get the sense that any of them have really kind of taken on radically new forms oh yeah yeah a lot of times we'll uh i don't spend a lot of time listening to my records so a lot of times we'll be playing a song live and if i do happen to listen to it, i'll go oh we're we're playing that completely wrong <laughs> i forgot about that part or or whatever and then me and dale just we're just not that concerned with that kind of thing the, the live is a vibe it's a vibe thing it's not about playing this playing everything perfectly i mean art music is art and art is communication even if you're not 
completely sure of what the meaning is, all good art is communicating something, whatever it is. And really, when you go to a live show, what you're giving people to me, what I want when I go to a live show is the human element of the performer getting up there and doing something with the attitude that they know something that you don't know. And that's what's magical to me about it. It's like, I want to go there and see whoever it is and, and have them showing me something I just am not aware of in my normal life. And it takes people out of their normal existence that they normally go through and, and transports them to somewhere else, even for a moment. That's what's cool about it. That, the same thing with movies, same thing with a painting, but nothing moves me more than music does, ever. Music, mu- movies to some degree, but because they have music, I mean, music is as old as civilization itself. For some reason, rhythmic pounding or what, and singing, for some reason, it strikes us and has for literally thousands of years in a way that makes us feel somehow special. I don't know why, but it does. To me, it's magic. Magical thing. And I want to go out there with my music and make as magical an experience for people as I can and try to give them something that they don't normally get from music. Be a different kind of band that's giving them a different kind of thing, whether it's our records or our live shows, that they're, they're just, that we're just different than, than what, and give people a reason to come and spend their hard-earned money to see us or buy our records because it's, it's worth it. That's the sole goal of the whole thing. I haven't really heard it contextualized like that, but it, but it makes sense that, you know, maybe the reason why watching somebody play an acoustic guitar in the room on their iPhone doesn't necessarily translate to the audience is that there is, there's no escapism in that, right? If I'm, yeah. if I'm home during a pandemic and I'm watching you be home during a pandemic, it's not really getting me out of my, my head. Especially it's like, oh, it's live. Well, how do you know it's live? I could have sit there and did 50 takes of it. I can't do 50 takes of I'm playing a show in front of you in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> it's, that's it. I get one shot at it. That's the cool thing about it. The human element you can never translate onto internet or onto film in a movie. You can't do it. You know, something like Stanley Kubrick was amazing, but some of those takes in his movies were over a hundred times. You don't get that live. You don't get that opportunity to do it until you get it perfect. In the studio, you do to some degree, but you don't get that. That's the thing that you're not going to... The live juice is the human experience. And, and that's what's so cool about it. It's why people want to go. We've done it north of 2,000 times on stage, and I don't know how many shows I've seen. I know what that feels like. <laughs> I mean, sometimes live shows, for us, we put them into um, thirds. A third, of them, a third of them are really, really good. It's like, oh, my God, that was great. I didn't even have to think while I was playing. It worked perfectly. A third of them are pretty good, and a third of them, you just feel like you just can't do anything right that night for whatever reason. The percentage is that high? It's a third, third, third. That's what I would say. You never can depend on when that's going to be. But that's just your experience because then you talk to people after the show, and they'll go, that was the best time I ever saw you play or, or something that doesn't go. I've never had it be, I thought the show was bad and have somebody come up to me and go, yeah, it seemed like you guys are struggling. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really happen that way. I mean, sometimes things will happen that are beyond your control, like, you know, technical difficulties, your amp book or something that can screw up the momentum of the show. But 
people, I think people by and large understand that. But for us, it's like, I'm not concerned. Like if monitors go out or think I don't throw a fit on stage, I do my job. I'm there to do my job. And my job is to play as good as I can every single night to the best of my ability and try to make it as cool as possible and not get hung up on things that the audience has no control over. Like I can't hear anything through my monitor and freaking out. I watched Motorhead do that one time and it cemented in me how ridiculous that was because if the monitors go out halfway through my show, I'm not quitting. I'm just going to have to deal with it. I'm just going to have to deal with it just be a professional and deal with it. I watched them bitch at a monitor guy for two thirds of their set at a, at a festival. They have thousands of people waiting there for them to play. I'm like, I'm never going to do that. Never. What I'm doing, I have to be able to get past those kinds of roadblocks or it's ridiculous. The audience paid to see them play and here they are acting and they're just looking like a bunch of idiots. I can't hear this. I can't hear that. Yeah, no shit. Your motor head. It's not a fucking opera. The other side of that too is something that, that I, that I think about a lot too, as it pertains to my own stuff that I put into the world, which is learn to take the compliment. Like if somebody tells you it's a great show, you can't be, you can't yeah. say, Oh, this is, this sucks. You can't say this thing that you no, paid no. money for and that you enjoyed was shitty yeah. for the following reasons. Yeah. I never do that. I always, I, I always assume that oh, it's only me that felt that way because I'm not out in front of the PA. You know, I don't know. What, what it sounds like. I only know what it sounds like for me on stage. That's it. And a lot of these people, not a lot, but you know, it's a fair amount of them have never seen us before. They don't know what to expect from us. I don't want to ruin that for anyone. I appreciate each and every person that has any interest in what we're doing. I love it. That's, and I'm always nice to everybody unless they're assholes. I'm never, ever mean. You're not going to find anybody that's going to go, oh, he was an asshole to me. No, you were an asshole. You were drunk and you're acting like a fucking dick or whatever. And I'm not going to take that from you. But if you're, if you're a polite person and you just want to talk to me about what a fan you are or whatever, I have time to do that. No problem. I'm going to do the best that I can under those circumstances. There are nights when, when not only does it not go well, but you're not feeling well and maybe like, you don't necessarily want to be there that night. Yeah. It's hard to be nice sometimes when you're just like, when you're like, oh, I'm on tour and I'm sick and this is night 300 and tonight didn't really go well. I, I don't necessarily yeah. want to hang out at the show and, and shoot the shit with you. No, I don't, I don't go out looking for it. But if someone's there, um, I have no problem. Like we don't do meet and greets or any of that kind of stuff. I, I never do that. They just seem corny to me. Um, I don't want to do that. I, don't, I just don't want to do it. But if, if someone, if we're leaving the club or... And I, they happen to be there or they want to have waited and want to talk or have, give me the sign stuff. I, I have time to do that, whether I'm sick or not. And I can tell them, oh, man, I'm not doing very good. Uh, oh, and then usually they'll go, oh, we couldn't tell, you know. So just let's leave it. I, I, I believe them. There's no reason for me not to believe them. I love to do it. I love that they're there. That's the most important thing. And, like, people can go, and it doesn't matter what it is. You can go on and on about Music, uh, whether it should be on vinyl or streaming or whatever it is, the most important thing is the music. The most important thing is that people are listening to it, and I don't care how they're listening to it, whether it's vinyl or whether it's streaming or whether they want to come to a live show or they have any interest at all. That's the important thing here. That's it. And I, as long as I keep the attitude that I've always had and move forward with new ideas as far as like you know what we could do to further those kinds of concepts, I don't think I can go wrong as far as that's concerned. But when I start thinking, I know what people want, I'm going to do that. 
I don't know what people are going to want. And I'm not going to pretend. I just do what I do and do it in a way that's not perverse. Like, I'm going to make this record just to be an asshole. I've never, ever done that. I've only ever put out records that I like. People just don't understand what kind of vast palette of music that we like. They don't have any idea. I mean, I would never do that. I would never, ever do that. But we're also very artistic when it comes to that kind of thing. I'm not against um, artistic concepts. I like that kind of stuff. I've said it before, but we operate as a band like we, in a way that we would appreciate as fans. I would appreciate bands that do the kind of stuff we do. So I figured there'll be other people out there that will too. That's it, really. Just keep your moving forward. Keep your feet moving. Don't stop. Andy Warhol said something I really liked a long time ago, which was, um, while they're discussing what you just did, get your head down and continue making more art. Right. And plant the flag over here and let them come around it. Don't try to find them and plant the flag there. Just keep doing your thing and doing it under a quality that's that's high. It's not going to be millions of people, but it's going to be enough. You mentioned early on in the conversation that from the moment that the two of you really started taking things seriously. And I think you said kind of jumped off the cliffs or jumped into the deep ends that there haven't been any that, that financially you've been able to continue to do it. But, you know, in the, again, 30 or 40 years that you've been doing this, were there ever moments when it felt like there wasn't going to be another record or there wasn't going to be another Melvin's record or that it just wasn't something that you could necessarily continue to do forever? Yeah. And then those times is when I needed new, I needed to get rid of a member. That was the problem. And, um, um, uh, and that always worked. That's got to be tough, though, right? I mean, that's hard. It's hard to fire somebody. It, it's not my favorite thing in the world to do, but uh, the hardest one was uh, uh, with Kevin Romanis. That was the hardest because he really hated our guts for it, but it was for his own good as a result of his extracurricular activities. And he hated us for years and years. And But I knew it was the right thing to do. And then we're friends now, and he came back way later and said, had you not done that, I would be dead. And I was willing to, I was willing to let that go and let him hate me because I just couldn't be a part of it anymore. And so now we're friends because he realized those kinds of things. And then he apologized to me in a way that didn't include the word you, but you did this and you didn't know it was a real apology that I could accept and that's all I'm ever looking for as far as that kind of stuff's concerned. I have no interest in keeping it going. But there's plenty of people who've been around our camp who have no interest in doing that either. So that's fine, too. That's their trip, whatever that is. But me and Kevin are friends. And we've even we've worked together on a, a wide variety of things. And our band is toured with the band he's in now. And, and that's all I ever really wanted was for him to be okay. That's it. I couldn't be I couldn't be involved in it anymore and have it not work out. So so those kinds of things happen. But when that when that when, that was the hardest one. When we got rid of him, that we were very discouraged, very discouraged fellows, Dale and I. And um, I wasn't ready to to pack it in. But what I was ready to do was try something totally new. And that's when we got the big business guys, two drummers, start completely over, reimagine the entire band, and. Um, then we did that again with, uh, not because of, uh, we didn't kick anybody out, but at that moment, what we said was, me and Dale are never going to, we're never going to hire anybody, a solid member again. Whatever me and him do is the Melvins, and whoever we're playing with is the Melvins, too. 
So everybody has that understanding that you can play with us, but we've been at this for too long to get that emotionally attached to any of this kind of stuff. It's too hard at this point. You know, so then we could do stuff with Trevor Dunn, like Melvin's Light, or we reimagine the Melvin's with a stand-up bass player and do all kinds of things along those lines. And it just made it, it made it way easier. We can play with Steven. We can play with the big business guys. We can play with Trevor. We can play with anybody we want to, and it's all good. That's really, I, I really don't think that would have worked until we'd already been a band for more than 20 years. That kind of gave, gave us that leeway to be able to allow that kind of thing to happen. But I just can't deal with that kind of emotional stress ever again. It's too difficult. Especially with people like Trevor. Trevor has his own gig with mass amounts of stuff he does. With He does tons of jazz stuff and is in all kinds of other... Great. He, he's got his focus on that. Steven's got a lot of things he does as well as Red Cross, which we were big fans of. And Dale plays the Red Cross now too. So we had no interest in that stuff. So it's just like, no, you keep your thing going. You can do stuff with us too. And you know, we can do the Melvin's 1983. And just a lot of stuff like that. It makes it a lot easier, a lot less stress, a lot of pressure taken off, um, which I'm a bigger fan of than putting all my eggs in one basket. It's like realizing, you know, a few years into early, uh, a marriage that the secret to that longevity is being polyamorous. Go out and, and meet other people and do these other projects and realize that you will you will come back to this thing. Yeah, well, the thing about that is... Uh, um, I couldn't handle that in my marriage. I've been married 28 years, and it's like sure. It's not. It's not. It's not a perfect analogy, but I, I think there's something. We're making there. this commitment. That's it. I'm willing to do. You should be willing to do what I'm willing to do. So far, it's worked. But I like that kind of commitment. I'm very. You know, me and my wife have been married 28 years, and we always joke to the same person. <laughs> That's always just the funny part. Believe me, in 28 years, how many people we've seen get married, divorced, married, divorced? You know, it's like, why are we still married? Every divorce seems like the thing to do. I'm committed to that the same way I'm committed to the band. And, and uh, although I feel like the greatest accomplishment I have is my marriage by far, and I like the idea that someone that I'm so attracted to, both uh, physically and mentally is uh, uh, um, attracting to me too. So that was, that was, I felt like I won the lottery and I was able to at least uh, get, have that happen, which, which is very nice. And I'm not about to screw that up. And then I realized I'm a weird eccentric guy and women that are willing to put up with me and what I do for a living, they don't grow on trees. So I'm not going to take it lightly. This is a strong partnership and I love strong women. I love it. And that's uh, very exciting to me. And, uh, very attractive. She's a graphic designer, right? So she has some yeah. she has some insight into your world. Yeah, and she does most of our record covers and has since um Stoner Witch, um, which is great. Uh um we work side by side on lots of stuff along those lines. She does letterpress printing and all kinds of things. She's a very complicated and uh dynamic woman. So that's a it's it's, it's a very exciting thing for me. And I couldn't be happier in the situation I'm in. And that's been the case for damn near 30 years. So there you go. What can you say? I'm an old fashioned when it comes to that kind of thing. Have you made any progress on the memoir during the pandemic? Yeah, I'm still working on that stuff slowly but surely. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, I feel like I have to get it all out first and then edit it down to something else. And I'm not, Working with a ghostwriter, so that makes it harder too. So it's kind of like figuring out how to do it all. Yeah, you mean you need to to, to do like a once over, get every story you want to tell on paper, and then go back and figure out figure out what's important about this, how exactly I want to do. I also um, focus a lot on photography, which I'm a big amateur photographer, which I love. 
a couple of years ago, I started an Instagram page, which I haven't done anything with since May. But I think people were kind of surprised at the level of photography that it was on to the point where Revolver had me shoot the cover for with Patton, which was great. I could prove that I could actually make that work. That was nice. But um, so I have a photography book coming out too at some point. That's one of my favorite things. Has been since I was a kid. I just never, I always just took pictures pictures and never showed them to anybody. So, and then um, once digital photography came around then I was able to take as many as I wanted, I could rarely afford much developing and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have the money to buy a home developing kit or any of those kinds of things or super fancy cameras. I don't have super, I have pretty good cameras now, but I don't have cameras worth thousands of dollars. They're worth hundreds of dollars. <laughs> Having these, these side projects, these non-musical side projects, is that ultimately also helpful when it comes to making music? Oh, I think so. It's all art to me. I also love uh, uh, exercising and playing golf and stuff like that, um, which which is a tough. I don't know if you play, have ever played golf. I've never played golf. Fucking hard as shit. I mean, I've hit through the windmills, but I, I don't think that that I don't think that counts. Well, it's a different kind of golf. You know, it's still fun. I mean, if there was one right in front of me, I'd do it. But um, uh, but uh, 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 golf is a solitary sport. It's not a team sport, um, which I like a lot. And uh, I was determined to figure out how to do it. That's another thing that I do. And I do it with as, as high a level as I can. And I play pretty good, considering. I mean, like a, um, probably like an eight handicap or something. So I was listening to an interview that you did, and you are the only person that I've ever heard talk about this book before. Oh, my God. That's the best rock book ever written. This is... You're the only person I've ever heard say that. And... When I moved out to New York and I didn't have any money, I moved out here to, to write about music. I was working at interning at Spin at the time. It was like checking out every rock book. And yeah, this is Dark Stuff by Nick Cannon. It's my all-time favorite. It is the best rock book ever written. He's, he's, he's a master. Did you read his autobiography? I did. I read his other stuff. I liked it. But this, I don't know. Maybe it's just the distilled stories that are in this book. Far and away, my favorite book of his. Oh, I really liked. I really liked the uh, um, uh, apathy for the devil. I thought that was great. Um, autobiography is great. It's hilarious. It's just self-deprecating through the whole thing. But um, Nick is. Uh, I think. Yeah, I think he's the best rock writer of all time. But I don't think anybody comes close. Who's who's who? Who'd be there? Lester Bangs was. Yeah, I'm looking at my. My wall over here. Yeah, Lester Banks is on there. But most of them are, are people that don't sound... The thing that's good about Nick is that you can tell he's a fan first. He's a fan. And, uh, no matter what kind of crazy shit he writes about Brian Wilson, he loves the Beach Boys. No matter what he writes about you know, Rocky Erickson, he loves Rocky Erickson. That's the thing. He loved Led Zeppelin. He loved, all, all, you know, on and on. He's a true fan. I felt that way about Lester Bangs, too, but I think that Nick Cave did it better. Nick Kent was a little bit like this, but the thing about Lester Bangs, and this is a failing of, like, a lot of rock writers, but a lot of just artists in general, is that he wanted to be a rock musician so bad that yeah. I think that ultimately was kind of his downfall. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nick, Nick was a rock, rock and roller to, to boot as well. Yeah. yeah. Lester Bangs, he got the sense he was, like, on the outside looking in and, like... Yeah really wanted to be on the inside looking in. Yeah. And, and yeah, so, so, yeah, lesser for sure. But uh, Nick, uh, I th- I, you're one of the only people I've ever heard talk about Nick. Nobody ever says a word about him. I find the stories I find the most interesting are the kind of the, what happens after the fame stories. And this is just like 
this is like shooted into my veins, distilled. I was talking to somebody, I was reading a, 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 a it was like a three part Churchill biography and i was only interested in the last part because that is always it's always the sort of like the downfall in the last year is for whatever reason I, you know, obviously we're not talking necessarily like the end of iggy pop's life here but like those years when things are lean and you're on the other side of it that's always been the most interesting to me oh yeah and he, he his writing is funny if it wasn't if it wasn't funny it wouldn't be anywhere near as good it's funny and, and, and it's right and you can tell how genuine it is. I just love it. I just love it. I think he's, uh, yeah, like I said, the best and, um, unheralded. I think I, I, I never heard his name. I just saw him on a shelf and picked it up one day and started reading it. Like I was completely unfamiliar with it and was blown away. Yeah. You know, as, as somebody who is like the memoir that you're working on, as you've said in other interviews is, is influenced by him and his writing. I've got the Dylan oh, book yeah. here too, I wish. which I could only hope. No, the Dylan book there is there somewhere too, and and I think he just did. He does a really interesting job, like actually writing a book. You know what I mean? In a way that like memoirs aren't books is what's interesting about that one. But drawing these influences from Nick Kent specifically, do you get a sense of like how that will play out in the memoir that you're working on? Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's it's, it's pretty self into not so much a history as it is. What am I thinking when I'm doing this? It's like I have one section in there. It's called the most important tour I ever did you know, why it was the most important. What was I thinking when I was doing it? And to really break that down, I really have to sit there and think. But what I have, I have an ace in that I can show, I show it to Dale. I go, is this right? And he'll read it and go, yeah, that, that's 100% right. You had somebody who was there with you for the entire yes. journey. Am I wrong about this? Am I missing something here? Is there something in here that I, that I don't have? No, no, you're right. That's exactly right. And the funny thing is, is with memories, especially as much history as me and him have, we know stuff happened. But at this point, I'm not sure if I said it or if he said it. And neither is he in a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, did I do that or did you do that? We're not sure. So you just do the best you can. It's the same with the original Melvin's drummer. Me and him have so much history going back all the way into high school. It's like we know about certain incidents, but when you start breaking it down, what exactly happened? It's like, did I do that? Did you do that? Did I say that? Did you? It's like, mm. well, we know it happened. <laughs> you know, so then you write about it about uh, along those lines. You know, I think it's a uh, um, you know I can I don't know how interested people will be, but uh, um, I think there's a story there in that a uh, weird kid thinks about music in a way that that eventually influences and changes music on a global level has some story. I'd say so. Yeah, and then the idea that those ideas that I had well before they took off, I had to just keep going with the idea that I wasn't wrong. I'm not wrong. And I wasn't wrong. What it was missing in music was exactly what I thought was missing in music. As it turned out, that was correct. It's probably hard to, to distill and it is kind of an abstract idea, but what were those ideas and, and, and what was missing? I just felt like the power of music could be there in in a way that wasn't punk rock and it also wasn't heavy metal. There's, a, in, there's an in-between. There's mostly crossover bands. They sound like heavy metal bands to me or sound like bad hardcore bands. There's, not a, there's a difference. And, and, and what it ends up being is more like, you know, heavy metal Captain Beefheart or heavy metal Pixies. You know, which is kind of what Nirvana was. Heavy metal version of the Pixies. And like, like um, Soundgarden took 
all the stuff that we were doing and made it more palatable, but still kept odd time signatures and weird ways of writing songs, all things that they, they, that they loved about us and were never, never sorry about saying, you know, they had no problem saying where their influences came from. See, it must be validating, but like, is it hard not having a little bit of jealousy when <laughs> they, they become superstars? I, those fans are much less weird than we are. We're far weirder than they are. I mean, I had always understood it. Never. I, I was only ever completely satisfied and happy with their massive success. Never bothered me. I felt like I was getting a lot more out of it than I ever thought I would. And I always knew that the biggest mistake you can make is thinking you deserve more than you actually get. I think I said, said that, you know, that uh, um, be happy with what you get, not with what you think you should get. I, I just have never stopped believing that. And, and uh, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, I'm okay with my place in the world. It's fine. And I'm not Chris Cornell or Kurt Cobain. I don't look like that guy, those guys. and never, never did. You're also still around. I'm still around. So who wins? Ultimately, you know, I mean, if I have to go back to it, especially the Cobain thing, I would rather have him be unfamous and alive than massively famous and dead. That doesn't do me any good. It's just, I'm not, uh, I don't look at it from the Courtney Love-esque perspective. Like everyone's jealous of everybody else's fame. I'm not her. I'm the exact opposite of her. Anything that she thinks I have to think the opposite or I'm wrong. If you start realizing you're agreeing with her on any level, then you're fucking wrong. You better rethink it. <laughs> no matter what it is, whether it's fashion or movies or music or just lifestyle, if, if you're agreeing with her on any level, you are wrong. <laughs> you know, you're screwed up. And you got you to start over or you're going you're gonna to end up in a seriously fucked up place. Because that kind of thinking only makes you worse. 